Galilee, as we know, was divided into what we call the Upper Galilee and the Lower Galilee. The Upper Galilee was called the Galilee of the Gentiles because it was mainly occupied by Gentile people. It was in the neighborhood of what we know of Tyre and Sidon. And the the using of the words Gentile denotes those that are not Jews. Everybody asks me sometimes, what does the word Gentile mean? It just means that you're not a Jew. Anybody that's not a Jew is called a Gentile. But it's not only referring here of non-Jews, but it's also suggesting and referring to the Gentiles being paid that they're very ruthless people, very paganistic people, idol-worship people. Capernaum was known for its trade due to it being a city by the sea because it was a fishing village. It was known for its water, its ships, its ports, its fish, its fishermen, and mainly of all, its trade because it's a great trade route. It had a population of somewhere around 1,500 people. That's how big this was. And even though the upper part of Galilee was populated mainly by Gentiles, yet the Capernaum area was actually populated populated by mainly Jews. And this is why that Jesus chose the small village of Capernaum to live in because he came first to the Jewish people. And he also chose Capernaum because it was near an important road to Damascus that he'd be traveling back and forth in ministry. And it was a place to meet and actually influence and talk to people. There were people in and out of there all the time. There was flux of people coming in, coming out because of the great trade that was there. So it was an opportunity for Jesus to mingle among people. Capernaum also had a population of a mixed race of people, which made it very, very dangerous. It's a very dangerous place to live, and it created multiple mixed cultures, which caused problems. There was a lot of prejudices in this village and a lot of mixed race of people that caused great conflicts, great wars, like gang members, if you would please. And Capernaum is mentioned more than 50 times in the New Testament alone, making it most mentioned... uh, after that of Jerusalem, only Jerusalem is mentioned the most. The nearest city of Ti- the nearest city was Tiberi- Tiberius, which was a bigger and important city. But Jesus chose not to dwell in that big major city because Herod Antipas ruled and persecuted the followers of Jesus, and it was him that murdered John the Baptist. As a matter of fact, our text says in Matthew it starts out by saying in verse twelve. Now, when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he dwelt then in Galilee. Now, it wasn't that Jesus was afraid to stay there and die. It wasn't that he was afraid of the suffering, but he left because his time to die was not yet according to the word of the Lord. So Jesus chose the upper coast of Galilee because it was where Philip II had ruled. And he did not persecute the first Christians, so it made it easier for Jesus to move around and to do ministry openly. He wanted to be able to minister to people. And the second, and the, and the, the scripture speaks, of the land of Zebulun and Nephilim to be a place of gross darkness. Now, notice that. This is kind of odd. It's kind of strange. And even though it was a semi-prosperous place, yet there was great spiritual darkness there. Prosperity is not always a sign of liberty and freedom. I want you to know that. The prophet said that the people roamed in darkness, and he called it himself a region where they sat in the shadow of death. Matthew chapter 4, verse 
15 and 16 of our text says, The land of Zebulun and the land of Nephilim by the way of the sea, the people which sat in darkness saw a great light, and to them which sat in the region in the shadow of death, light has sprung up. The spiritual climate was due to an influx of these Gentiles, which had no real or one religious background. They served many idol gods and many different kinds of strange gods, which brought spiritual darkness upon the land. The Gentiles moved into that northern part due to it being severely ravaged in war when the Assyrians invaded from the north. As a matter of fact, it was uh, it was an abandoned land. No one wanted to go there because of that. What the Jews called the misfits, the infidels, the pagans, the Gentiles, they began to populate in this area due to a lack of population, and this was the reason for the increase of these Gentiles in the land in the first place. In other words, they kind of took it over like the toys were on the island of misfit toys. It was a place where no one wanted to go. It was a place that was desolate, so they just took it over. They thought that, well, we'll go there and live. We'll go to that place that no one else wants to go because it's desolate, it's worn tour, and there's nothing there. It's a place of darkness. This area was the first to suffer the Assyrian invasion. The land ravaged, war-torn, and the people were still living with the effects and the consequences of that war and the fallout that followed. Let me just stop right here and say this. It takes years upon years sometimes to rebuild and establish a society after a war, both physically and spiritually. And when I thought about that thought, I thought, here's this land. It's battle-torn. It's, it's been completely ravaged. It's been completely stripped. And no one wants to go there. There's nothing left over. It's like if an atomic bomb hit Popper Bluff and destroyed everything, and there's no one living here. And all of a sudden, the Gentiles say, well, uh, we'll just go over there and live, and we'll possess that land and take, we'll try to rebuild it. Well, there's going to be a lot of work to rebuild after a war like that. And can I tell you, somehow, the Lord spoke to me, and he said, there are people sitting in this service that are fatigued. They're battle-torn. They're worn. Uh, they've been, they've been, they're, they're worn out. They're tired. And they've been fighting. And they've been fighting spiritual battles. And it just seems like one battle right after another, right after another. And let's just be honest, and let's just be real here today. Whether you're a preacher, whether you're a member, whether you're, whether you're a, a, a janitor, whether you're a teacher or a lawyer, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're black, whether you're white, it really don't matter. All of us that have come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we fight many spiritual battles, and in those battles, we suffer loss sometimes. There are times that we get pushed down. There are times that we get kicked in the teeth. Come on, somebody. It's not always a better. There is a suffering that we suffer for Christ at times. There's times that we're tested to the limit. There's times that we're tried to the point that we think, oh, God, I don't think I can go on. There are times, even I, you, we all are that way. Sometimes we got these people uh, in our minds. Oh, they're, they're, they got everything together. There's none of us that's got it to the to, to, together to the point that we don't suffer in battle. Battle sometimes is rough. Sometimes it's tough. And I want to tell you, there are some of you that's been struggling to rebuild. There's some of you that's been struggling to get back what you got what you got stolen. There are some of you that's trying to pick back up where the where you left off. There's some of you that's having a tough time regaining your strength and regaining your vision and regaining your hope. But I'm here to tell you, just hang on a little bit because there's something about to take place.
place in your little village. There's something about to come to pass that's going to help you to overcome. And you're going to overcome your losses. And you're going to be healed of your afflictions. And you're going to be healed of, of your mental anguish. I'm here to tell you that God's about to move in the house of God again. Can I have an amen? Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. The great darkness is in this land, and the Bible says that the people, <coughs> excuse me, sat in darkness. Notice they did not say they walked in darkness, but rather that they sat in darkness. Now, how many knows there's a difference in sitting and in walking? The people had settled. They were not mobile anymore. They caved into their way of life. They became what we call complacent. Complacency is one of the most dangerous places to be in as a child of God because if you're not moving, you're dying. There is no idleness to the, to the person of God. And I don't mind as a, even a, 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 a devil's workshop according to the word of the Lord. But the people had settled. They weren't mobile. They just caved into the way of life. They became complacent. There was no hope of change. So they just sat and they began to be conformed to the, to the, to the, the spirit and the culture around them. They had lost hope. They had lost vision. And this is what we call oppression. And I don't know why, but the Spirit of the Lord has spoken to me here today and saying there's great oppression and affliction upon my people this morning. There's one on me right now. My wife wants to cover up, cover me up so I'll look better. It's too hot to be covered up, and if I look back, just get over it. Can I have an Amen. She said, the more I cover you up, the better you look, boy. <laughs> Amen. But the truth of the matter is there are a lot of people that are sitting in this service today, and you've learned how to just settle. You've taken life as, well, what will be, will be. There's nothing I can do to change it. I'm tired. I'm tired of fighting. I've been scrapping. I've been fighting, trying to keep my head above the water. I've been treading water. But there seems to be no hope. I prayed, but my prayers have not been answered. Come on. There's some of you discouraged. There's some of you that are just at the end of your rope. And this is where these people had come. They had come to the place that they quit trying to even fight the culture. They just caved into it. They just settled it. And there was some, I'm sure, that didn't embrace everything that took on, but neither did they oppose it, neither did they fight it. And that right there is the biggest challenge that we have in the body of Christ. Is it because of the culture that we're living in, if we're not careful, even though we don't embrace it and believe it, in it, yet if we're not careful, we'll become complacent to where we don't speak out against it and fight against it. Because when you do, there's war. And so, and every time that you begin to really put your foot forward to do something for the kingdom of God, the winds of opposition come to push you back. I, I find that every day in my preaching. Don't matter what I preach, there's a fallout of every time I preach, I face something that I preach that very week. And I want you to know there's times that the enemy will come by and whisper in my mouth, won't you just shut up? Won't you just sit down? Why don't you just quit? Why don't you just settle? You don't, you don't have to believe in everything, but you don't have to get up and, and oppose me. You don't have to get up and fight. Let's just all get along. Let's just all get along together. Well, I want to tell you that's not in my genetics and it's not in my makeup. And I'm here to tell the body of Christ, it's not a time to be silent. And it's not a time to be complacent. It's not a time to sit back and feel sorry for yourself and sit down in your battle fatigue 
can say, I'm done, I'm finished, there's no hope, God's not moving, where's God at? I'm here to tell you that if you'll hang on, if you'll just hold on a little bit longer, I want to tell you, weeping may endure for a night, but joy's coming in the morning. I'm here to tell you that something's about to happen in the house of God. Something's about to happen in the United States of America that's going to blow this nation apart for the glory of Almighty God. You can be critical if you want to. You see, we've heard that all of our lives, but I'm here to tell you we're at the threshold. We're at that place we're about to pass over. And it's not a time to get complacent. It's not a time to get weary in well-doing. For you shall reap if you faint not. It's not a time to cave into the voices of the world. In all of your opposition, in all of your struggle, lift up your eyes and look to the hills. Your redemption drove nigh. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, God, help me preach right here. Well, I said we was going to get out early. I don't know about it now. <clears throat> Zebulun and Eplin have been more or less vassal states to the series of Assyrian kings. Both of them eventually were taken into captivity during the end of the kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C., leaving the anguish and contempt in the whole region of Galilee. And according to our text, in Isaiah chapter 9, these people were as pawns of powerful states. Their histories was one of vulnerability, subjection, oppression. The land was just completely dark. Folks, that's where we're living. Our land is dark. I don't have to preach of everything that's going on for you to understand. Our land is dark. When our own government can't even define who a woman is, we're living in dark times. When we want to mutilate our children and try to change their gender, we're living in dark times. Come on, somebody. And I could go on and on and on. And here's the problem that I have as a pastor. No matter what I mention, it affects some family. And when you begin to affect families, if you're not careful, they can become offended by the word. But the truth of the matter is, I cannot shut up. I cannot be quiet. Because the only hope that we have is for us not to be complacent. The only hope I have is not to cave in and say, well, I don't want to offend anybody. If I'm going to grow the church, if I'm going to have a big multiple church, I'm not about big multiple churches. I'm about the true radiant glory of God coming down as a, as a result of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and not compromising the word of God and standing tall in a dark society that light might string up. Can I have an Amen. These people were conquered. They were a conquered people, and it was a land of brutality, a land of poverty, a land of hunger to them. It was a land without any hope. Some I've heard just Christians here lately say, man, America's gone. There's no hope. That's not true. I said, that's not true. That's a lie. You know why I know that? Because God made a covenant with our forefathers, and they made a covenant with him. And though we broke covenant, a lot of us, there's still some of us that haven't. And God told Abraham, if, uh, I mean, Abraham told Lot, if I can just find 10 righteous, or God told Abraham, if I can just find 10 righteous, I'll get it out in a minute. 
If I can just find 10 righteous in the Sodom and Gomorrah, I'll spare that city. Well, I want to tell you there's more than 10 righteous in the nation of America. And God's still got a covenant with us. Can I have an amen? And he'll fulfill that covenant. But this land was a land without any hope. They were a conquered people subject to the whims and the demands of the overlords. And sometimes you see people that are literally being completely abused and robbed by our own government, lied upon, thrown in prison when they didn't do anything. It's there. Every child born could be taken away by a more powerful one into slavery. Every field planted with crops could be harvested by the mighty and taken away. That's where these people lived. Every hope for their future is stolen by their masters who have the final say. This was a land of deep, deep darkness. There was oppression. There was bondage. There was slavery. This was the condition of the land of Zebulun and Neptalin. However, in the midst of this world of foreign powers, and foreign ways, foreign governments, foreign influences had taken over. In the midst of all of that, and I want to, I've always said this, and Brandy's preached it, I've preached it, Josh has preached it, Zach's preached it. We preached it way back in the 80s and the 90s that someday you would see that we gave a prophetic word, that we would see the things that were happening in the third world countries begin to happen right here in the United States. And we're beginning to see that. And we're seeing that there's now uh, overwhelming bondage that's taking place in our nation as a result of it. Among the mixed cultures that was formed and in the midst of obscured darkness, yet there came this great light. It was in the northern tribes that were the first to suffer from the Assyrian invasions. That's where they hit first. So we see through God's mercy, they will be the first to see the light of the glory of the Messiah himself. He comes and he rescues those that are in gross darkness. Can I tell you the misfits? I'm here to tell you that the outcast. I'm here to tell you that the rejected, even the Jews rejected, even though they were pagan and they were so out there in left field, yet you cannot get so far away that God can't reach you. And can I tell you, you can't get so lost he can't save you. You can't get so deep in a pit that he can't lift you out of it. It don't matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done. It don't matter how gross of immorality that you've been involved in. It don't matter that your thinking has been distorted and even possessed by evil spirits. I'm here to tell you that my God's able to come in the worst of situations and bring a light of hope and the glory of his presence and to bring you out. Can I have an amen. The once land of darkness and the lightly esteemed land has now seen a great light. It's now become renowned. Isn't that odd? And it's only through the divine agency that this great light was shined upon them. It wasn't due to some great deed that they had done or because of some great wealth that they had occurred or due to some human greatness. They were nothing but misfits. It was by divine grace, unmerited favor, that he appeared unto them in that upper region. Can I remind each and every one of us here today, it is by his divine grace that we are saved because every one of us that sit here, we're nothing but misfits. Come on, somebody, rejected and outcast. There was nothing good in us. It was the Apostle Paul that reminded us in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself it's the gift of God, not by works lest any man should boast. It isn't by our merit or by our moral goodness or by our talents or by our human intelligence or by our ingenuity that we are saved. We are saved by grace and grace alone. We were all misfits, outcasts. We were all flawed. We were all of no character. 
character whatsoever. And God had a special blessing on this land that was known for its darkness and its curse. It was a land that dwelt in the valley of the shadow of death. Death rattles had come to this place. But can I tell you, wherever there's life, wherever there's a heartbeat, wherever there's a movement, wherever there's a voice, wherever there's a prayer, wherever there's just a spark, a fire, or a smolding embering, there is hope. It is here that God chose the most unlikely to do the most unlikely. Did you hear that? That God chose the most unlikely to do the most unlikely. God has not chosen. Matter of fact, the Bible even tells us not many noble are even called. But God's chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the base things of the world to confound those things which are mighty. And those things that are not as though they were. Come on, somebody. This was the place that he healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. This was also a place that he healed the centurion servant. It's also a place where Jesus healed the paralyzed man that was lowered down from the rooftop of a house. It was the place where Jesus taught in the synagogue and healed a man who was possessed by an unclean spirit. It was the place that he healed the sick man of the palsy that was lying on a bed. Light shined in darkness, and the darkness could not stop it. And let me tell you, God just spoke to my heart here studying this and said, when I get ready to bless, nothing's going to be able to stop me from blessing. When I get ready to move, nothing's going to be able to stop my move. When I get ready to take over, I'm going to take over. And I'm here to tell you, it don't matter how dark or how cold or how dead it seems in your situation, there's still hope because there's a risen Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the divine deliverer. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. And whatever you're going through here today, light can shine in your darkness. This was the place in Matthew chapter 9, verse 12 and 13, that the people could understand what he was doing, what he was doing in that land that was so obscured and so dark and such paganistic area. And they, they questioned him about it. And this is what he said. They that are holy, not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn of me what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I'm not come to call the righteous, but I've called, come to call sinners unto repentance. Jesus wasn't in Jerusalem looking for sacrifice to be given to him. That is not why he, where he was at. He wasn't looking for sacrifice. Jesus was in the region of darkness in the valley of the shadow of death to do his ministry. What an odd place. Jesus was in the obscured place, the rejected place, the despised place, the overlooked, the unimportant. It, it did not look valuable to others. But due to it being overshadowed by darkness and death, people shunned from that place. But Jesus chose it. This is surely not a place that you would look for a Messiah. It's not a place that you would try to find a Messiah. It's surely not a place for a king to reign. It's not a place for a king to put up his throne. And this was the place that Jesus actually selected to be the center of his public ministry after leaving Nazareth. It was the place that he set up what we would call headquarters. Can you imagine that? He didn't choose to do his ministry in the grand cathedrals of Jerusalem. He didn't search out the most glamorous temple and the most glorious place to set up his ministry. He didn't crave to the limelight or seek center stage, but he dwelt in the land of darkness, one that was shadowed by death because it was the place that the people were at and it was the people that needed him the most. And let's all get a real concept of what ministry is all about. It's not about stroking your ego. It's not about being in the limelight. 
timeline. It's not being able to be behind the pulpit. It's not being able to be out in center stage. It's not about trying to gain favor or fame or a name. It's not about someone stroking your ego to where you can feel good about yourself. Ministries all for the people and by the people. We as a people, those that are chief should learn how to serve. Can I have an amen? Somebody give the Lord praise there. That's better preaching than what you're letting on. You want ministry? Go to the nursing home and start. If there's ever a place that God needs a light, it's in there. I know. I've been in there with my mother. But a lot of times we're too good for that. We get offended if we're asked to go because we'd rather have the limelight behind the church. Oh, my, I got to get off of that. Matthew 9 and 1, it says, And he entered into a ship, and he passed over and came to his own city. Now, notice it said his own city. This was not speaking of Bethlehem where he was born. It wasn't speaking of Nazareth. It wasn't. He, he called this city, Capernaum, his own city. This was the place he started his ministry. As a matter of fact, it was the hometown of Matthew, the tax collector, who became one of his chosen 12, who was one of the most despised disciples there were because you know why? He was a tax collector. You know what tax collectors done? They were thieves. And they robbed the people. They overtaxed the people and took part of it, put it in their pocket, and gave the rest to the government. And they hated tax collectors. And that's where he found Matthew. It was also the region in which the apostle Peter and Andrew lived because they lived in Bethsaida. A matter of fact, all 12 disciples came from that region. Think about that. Five of them came out of Capernaum themselves. Look where Jesus picked his team in the land of darkness. He didn't go to Jerusalem looking for them. He didn't go to the temple looking for them. He went in the most unlikely place to find the team that he needed to change the world. And if you're a white elephant with pink polka dots like that, what showed on there, then I got a word for you here today. Then that means you're special, you're unique, and you're one of a kind, and there's no one just like you. Come on, somebody. And God made you that way so that you can bring glory to Almighty God. Quit trying to change who you are and be quit trying to conform to somebody else. Be yourself for heaven's sakes. That's what God has created you to be. And there's nothing better than being who you're called to be and be who God has formed you to be. Rise up with pink polka dots and declare the glory of God and become a favored vessel of the Lord and be unique and be special and fulfill a role that no one else can fulfill. Can I have an amen? Praise God. God is going to pick people from the most unlikely place to do his most unlikely work. Oh, hallelujah. Don't despise the day of small things. Don't despise the day of little things. God's going to do some great things. Matter of fact, when I began to study this, I thought, Lord, what is it you want me to get across? The Bible even tells us that if the mighty works that was done in Capernaum would have been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes until this day. Miracles were performed. Supernatural displays of his power was manifested. And the goodness of God was poured out upon that region of darkness. I got to thinking, oh, God. Do it again. 
Amen. Jesus did more ministry in the northern area of Israel around the Sea of Galilee than anywhere else. Follow his footsteps. I've done, done a survey of it. The land became a glorified place due to the event of the Messiah. The nobodies begin to become somebodies. The unnoticed begin to be noticed when they met Jesus. Hallelujah. You want to be noticed? Just meet Jesus. The misfits found a place to belong. The unimportant became important. All of a sudden, the place that was despised is now found favor to where people want to be a part of it. The land that was once lightly esteemed has now become known due to the special blessings of the Messiah's visitation. What was rejected and despised has now become favored and desired by all people. Isn't it odd how that you can't get somebody to do certain kind of a ministry? And you'll ask somebody, can you do it? No, I can't do it. Can you do it? No, I can't do it. No, can you do it? No, I can't do it. Because it's not glamorous. There's nothing there. There's really nothing to offer. It's just a, you know, a, a small little group of kids or maybe it's a small little group of older people or whatever it is. No one seems to be wanting it because there's really no glory or no fame in doing that little bitty work with such a small few then all of a sudden you'll get the right leader and they'll go in and they'll work themselves to death and all of a sudden God begins to use them and before long that ministry begins to flourish and before long, man, people begin to be poured in. People begin to get saved. God begins to work miracles and people begin to ray about it and people begin to talk about it and people begin to, you know, testify of what's going on and before long, everybody wants it now. Everybody wants to get involved. Those that was rejected, oh, I want to be involved in that ministry. Come on, somebody. I'm reminded of Cassie and Dan King. What they took over, friend, you got to be called to it for number one. But I want to tell you, there was nothing there. Oh, my, but look where it's at today. Look where it's at today. There wasn't no one stepping up to plate wanting to take that ministry over. Come on, somebody. I want to tell you what has happened is God brought a little lady and a little man into a place of gross darkness, and he put his anointing upon them, and their anointing broke yokes and bondages of sin, and they stood up and they weren't silent, and they went through many trials and many tribulations, and they still do, but they're standing tall proclaiming the glorious liberty of Jesus Christ, and women are being set free. Oh, somebody needs to stand and give God praise for it. The light had sprung up. The darkness of the shadow of death had begun to fade away. Hope began to be born. Hopelessness began to vanish. Fear had been given away to peace because, wow, the Prince of Peace had showed up. Can I have an amen? I'm, I'm preaching to somebody here today. Dead places come alive again when Jesus takes up residence in it. Matter of fact, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He said, he, said that he that has a son has life. He that has not the son has not life. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Jesus, did you know Jesus can resurrect dead things? He can cause them to live again. Come on, somebody. Jesus can take torn places and bring them back to wholeness. Jesus can take afflicted places and mend them back to health. Jesus can take poor places and make them prosper again. Jesus can take bound places and set it free. Jesus can take dark places and make it have light again. 
As a matter of fact, Jesus said in John 8 and 12, I'm the light of the world, and whosoever followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but he shall have the light of life. God reminded me of our coming to Ninth and Cedar, me and Jenny, back in 19, I think it was 86, and how that, that little place was desolate, empty. It was a very barren place. There was just but a handful of people. The church building was run down, about to fall in in places. The property was unkept. The, there's no money in the bank. We was in debt to people all over town and businesses all over town. We were in the red in the checkbook. We had an old house that was about to fall in that we owed $18,000 on. We didn't know how we was gonna make that payment. And uh, the house needed to be tore down and we didn't have enough money to tear the house down nor could we get the bank to release it to do it. So that old thing just stood there as a monument to us of bondage. There was no classrooms, no fellowship hall. There wasn't even a chalkboard, not one, not even a chalkboard. No supplies, no literature, no classrooms, not one classroom, no music, no sign. There was absolutely nothing. There was only one bathroom that was working, and it was had ceiling tile falling in, and it was dirty, and it was it, it was it was just it was just gone. It had earmarks of death all over that little building. You might say it had a big billboard that flashed neon lights that says, "Don't come here." Death was intimate and certain. It already had the death rattles. Have you ever had heard someone have the death rattles? I have. But God looked down at the most unlikely spot. He'd done the most unlikely things with the most unlikely people. What you see here today come out of that despised place, a place that was certain not to succeed or achieve, a place that had been cursed by the mouths of others and even was prophesied against by some of the false prophets of the churches around in that neighborhood prophesied that that church would be closed and it would, there was words of, of a, a curse over the church. Darkness and death had came upon that little church on Ninth and Cedar. But to those that dwelled in the shadow of death, light sprung up. There was a visitation of the glory of God that hit that place. Wasn't nothing that me and Jenny did. It wasn't nothing that really the congregation did. We just united together in love and said, let's just do our best. I was green as a gourd, could not preach my way out of a wet paper sack. I, I, I just, growing with the congregation, and we just loved one another, and we forgive another of our faults and failures, and we just done what we knew to do. We pulled our arms together, and God come down. We stayed in that facility for 20 years, and for 20 years, we had hundreds and thousands of people get saved to the glory of God the Father. We had healings and miracles. Things happened on a regular basis. Things began to take place and we were the talk of the town. Things began to happen to the point that we had to build this and come out here. And God seemed to say to me, when I began to look back at that and I look where we're at today, I said the difference today, God, when I was praying is that the church don't have the death rattles. I said the church is a vibrant church, it's a good church. I said, but the problem of it is you sent us to a place with death rattles. The church itself was dying. It was dead. There was nothing there. There wasn't even a ray of hope. Brother Gibbs would share with me at times. He said, I'd just lose all hope. I'd get so tired. They were Brother Gibbs and Sister Gibbs, Brother Merriman, Sister Merriman. 
and um, uh, Sister Carol Connolly and some of those uh, uh, earlier people, they kept the doors alive. They give all that they could, and we would sell whatever we could sell, do whatever we could do to try to make payments. There was nobody on salary. I worked a secular job. We'd done everything we could to just try to survive. And all of a sudden, they would tell me as I was pastoring them, we had no hope. We would leave, and we would leave, and we would always come back saying, oh, God, like Samson who fell into his bondage, but yet you'd done it a second time for him. Can you not do it a second time for us? And they just kept coming back, and they just kept praying. They were worn. They were tired. They were fatigued. And I can remember, I'll never forget this as long as I live, when the church began to explode. Before it happened, there was a man by the name of Brother Neil. Brother O'Neill, is that his name? The preacher that moved, what was their names? No, in that terrible, I'm getting old. He was the clerk. Neil. Now, I knew I was close. Hallelujah. Brother Nell came to me and he said, we're moving away. I said, boy, that's great. Got eight good members and two of them's leaving me. And he was the finances of the church. He gave more tithes than anybody. He gave $100 a month. I thought, what are we going to do? He was the backbone. He's the one that held it together. He said, me and my wife's got to go to St. Louis to take care of her mother. We're going to move away from you. I'm sorry. But he looked at me and he said, young man, don't get discouraged. I seen a vision. He said, we've wept over this and we've cried over this. We don't want to leave, but God's told us we have to leave. I didn't understand it. But he said, young man, don't get discouraged. He said, I seen this building completely full. And he said it was full of young people and there were all different varieties of colors upon the shirts. There were reds and yellows and blues. And he said, I'm not talking about, he said, I'm, I'm not talking about it being kind of three-fourths full. He said, it was running over. It was so jammed. It was less than a year and a half later he came to one of our services. He walked in and we had to make special seating for him because there wasn't no seats. And he sat down and he stood up in the middle of the congregation. He said, I got to testify. He said, in my vision over a year and a half ago, this is what I seen. This very service. This very service. Hallelujah. And this is where I want to I leave you with this morning. Is that I began to pray and I said, God, we went to that desert place and you made it blossom again. You were the root out of the dry ground. You, you were the one that brought nurture, and you're the one that brought it back to life. You're the one that breathed upon it. But I said, the difference is that we're, we're not a dead congregation. What are you speaking to me? He said, the difference is, is that the region back then was ripe for a harvest, and there was things going on. The church was dead. I had to revive the church. He said, now I'm going to revive the church one more time, but you're going to revive the culture. In the middle of darkness, Palace of Praise is going to be a great light. In the middle of obscured oppression, 
when everybody's on edge and everybody's emotions are strung out and there's so much fear and so much fear base that's pounded through the media and pounded through the news and darkness and every time you turn on you hear about all the different kinds of things that's going on even in the White House building itself they come out this week and said that there was more or less adult movies being filmed in one of the rooms of homosexuality and that's going on in our White House and the news come out again and it said this and said awful stuff awful some of it I can't even repeat behind the microphone and all the things and then all the stuff about China what it's trying to do to it, all this fear base but I want to tell you fear not because in the most unlikely place God's going to do the most unlikely thing would you stand with me this morning hallelujah 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 Oh, Lord, have mercy on us here today. If you're here this morning, the first thing I want to do, even though we got things we got to do this afternoon, I want to take time to pray for people that are just at the end of the rope. Discouraged, battle-torn, fatigued, afraid, weary. And you feel like, man, I've tried this and it don't work. Oh, I want to tell you, light's about to spring on you. Light's about to come to you this morning. Is there anyone like that here this morning? I'm not going to hold long, so you're going to have to move fastly and obey him. It all, it all depends upon your obedience here today. Is there anyone that just feels like, man, I've been, I've been through the meal and I need someone to encourage me. I need someone to lay hands on me. As they come, can I have saints get in behind them and start praying for them immediately? They need to know that they got a church that loves them and it's behind them. Is there anybody else this morning? Hallelujah. Yes. People are in need of a risen Savior, and they, they're in need of hope. Without vision, people perish. Without hope, without hope, we die. Oh, Holy Spirit. We need some ladies over here with our sister right here. Now I want to talk to you as a congregation. If you really believe that God's about to send an awakening, a revival that's going to revive us, and we're going to see the glory of God visit us again, would you grab somebody's hand and begin to pray and intercede and ask God, do it again. Just do it again, God. Just do it again. Do it one more time for us. God, we ask for the intervention of God. Pray for the intervention of God. Intercede with me. Have hope. Believe here today. In the name of Jesus, those of you that do believe, come down and lay hands on people. Ask God to touch them, to inspire them, and to help them and bless them, to heal them, to take away the torments, take away the pains, the afflictions. In the name of Jesus, hallelujah. Come on, intercede, church. We got to pray for our nation. Ask God to do it again to us. Ask God to do it again. I need your help. I need you to be praying. Lord, bless these that have come today in the name of Jesus. <laughs> 